we have a governance problem on all ends. And what ends up happening is, is a paralysis. And the paralysis always benefits the bad faith actor. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana College of Business. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Hey, folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. This is the November edition of Incentives and Instincts. I'm here again with our favorite economist, Bryce Ward, and we are excited to be joined by New York Times opinion writer-at-large, Charlie Warzel. Charlie, you've got a great title. I'm not really sure what it means, but I like it. Can you tell us what your job is? Oh, man, thanks for having me. Um, it's funny you say that because that is, uh, I don't really know what it is either. And when I came up with it, nobody really understood, uh, other than it sounds kind of like I'm uh, roving around the world doing important things. Um, but, you know, essentially, I, I'm like a creature of, of the internet, I like to say. And I, sort of write about uh, the ways in which technology and the internet are shaping, you know, culture at large and uh, society and all kinds of things. And it basically just means that, like, I follow my curiosities and my instincts and there's no real, you know, um, there's no one one set path or, uh, you know, we roll the punches. And so, so my job at the Times is basically to try to think through, I'm, I'm sort of similar to a, you know, a standard opinion columnist. Uh, except um, it's sort of trying to think through the next generation of that and, and you know, what that looks like. So, um, you know, I work a lot with our visual and graphics team to kind of do uh, visual journalism and storytelling. Uh, we're, we've, we've done a lot of work in trying to do investigative journalism on the opinion side. So, you know, it's the same rigorous reporting and sourcing and dealing with whistleblowers and leaks, but, but with sort of an opinionated bent. Right? Like we're, we're going to not just give you the story, but sort of tell you how you're supposed to feel about it a little bit uh, and, and, you know, maybe advocate for what should be done. But yeah, you know, broadly, I, I, I write about technology, politics and media and culture. And, and so I'm just super interested in systems, the way they're designed and the effects that they have. Well, those are areas that are very, very salient at the moment. We're catching you a little over two weeks after the election. It's a time where, you know, our information economy is being stress tested by the minute. One of the kind of questions I know you've explored and and Bryce and I have explored in our conversations is this nature of, we appear to be in a world where, where we can't find agreement or convergence on truth. And as a journalist, you're an opinion writer, but as a journalist, I mean, the truth is something that should be important to you, I would presume. It should be important to all of us. How, how are you kind of navigating that? Do you agree with that premise? And then if so, how are you kind of navigating it? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I really do agree with that premise. It, it's been a bit of a, an existential question and, and, and crisis that I've been dealing with for a while. You know, I... I slight backstory to back into this question, but you know, I started writing about the the internet professionally and, and technology in general in you know around 2009, uh, and that's sort of the advent of you know, real massive Facebook adoption, Twitter's getting off the ground, you know, Instagram, a number of these social networks starting to to pop up and and really sort of take hold in public consciousness, and we're, as we shifted a lot of our our you know behaviors online, I've 
I've watched this transformation happen and really been sort of privileged to have a front front row seated on it. And there's a lot of things that I noticed and a lot of my you know peers who've been paying attention have noticed over the, over the years. And I think it really, you know, started to happen around 2014, 2015, where you really were seeing um, these, these communities that were sort of springing up and, and giving people, um, you know, really helping sort of weave the fabric of, of, of an alternate reality. Um, and, and it was really hard to index the size of that, right? It was really hard to say, you know, am I, am I looking at a really small sample and extrapolating that out widely? Or am I, am I, you know, is, is this actually something that we're seeing at scale? And, you know, a lot of these platforms, it's, it's really difficult to, to take that temperature. Uh, I feel increasingly like what I am, again, my peers who study conspiracy theories and misinformation and disinformation and propaganda and things like that. Uh, I, I feel increasingly that like that what we, what we were seeing was, was, you know, very real and very, and, and has become very widespread. Uh, and I think that that really solidified with me, uh, you know, two weeks ago, looking at the election results. I think a lot of people expected a, you know, a repudiation, especially because of the pandemic of, of, of a Trump presidency of sort of, you know, the of Republican thinking, a lot of people in the media, a lot of people, you know, in think tank world and all that were expecting that. And, you know, what we saw is we didn't see that at all. We saw, you know, really a, a close to 50-50 split uh, it, there. And and it and it really does feel like those those, you know, those groups are a bit immovable. And so I'm I I am really, really concerned about this. Um, I, I think that, you know, especially if you look at the way that the um the president and his his campaign have tried to spin the challenging the results of the election, the way that certain news networks like OAN and Newsmax have sort of, you know, bolstered that. I think what we're really looking at is, is, a, is a fissuring of, of reality to some degree and, and information ecosystems that sort of, you know, cater to that and allow it to exist. Um, I think that's a really big, meaty issue, right? It's not just an information issue. It's a it's an issue about politics. It's an issue, you know, I, I, I think there's huge, broad societal trends that are causing this, but I'm incredibly worried about it as a journalist uh, because I think, you know, there's a, there's a, it's very easy when you work in a place like the New York Times to understand how a big swath of the country sees and, and views what you do. Um, and and it, it's troubling. And I, I, I don't say that as someone who's, you know, looking down on, on these folks or, um, you know, trying to cast too critical an eye. I just think it's, it's really troubling for a shared consensus for, you know, the ability for us to, to, to govern. I think, uh, I think it's, I don't think we're there yet, but I think it has the potential if it kind of continues down this road to be a real sort of existential crisis for democracy. And so, yeah. Yeah. So Bryce, you kind of have thought about this, at least in our kind of pre-interview dialogue, you thought about this in terms of, you know, there's disagreement about kind of basic facts about the natural world, whether that's, you know, the world is flat or various supplements or what it means to be healthy, things that are maybe debatable on with, with scientific methods. Um, but then there's debate about, or there's lack of agreement about belief about other people. 
and what their motivations are. And, you know, you've got some thinking in that space. How do you kind of di- digest what you're seeing and what Charlie comments on with this, this, this dichotomy that you've, you've proposed? Sure. So, I mean, again, let's start with the description. The, the, the fundamental fact that I think that's motivating this conversation is the fact that we can't get to a shared reality. And it's not to say that we ever have a shared reality, but usually there's some, there should be some notion of, yeah, we roughly think this is going on. And right now that seems to be expanding out. And, you know, as I, as I mentioned in my note to you, um, we've always had this, this isn't new, right? But a lot of what it was, say, 20, 30 years ago, it's what I would call private, right? I didn't believe that the world was round. Well, if you don't believe that the world is round, it doesn't really matter. The world is round and like your belief that it's flat doesn't actually affect that much. Or maybe you believe that certain supplements were going to make you super healthy or whatever it is. And there's no science to back up that stuff, but whatever. As long as it didn't harm you physically, then whatever. You could believe that that powder or that vitamin was the secret to your health, or maybe it was a crystal or whatever it is that you believed, it didn't, it didn't really matter. Right. But what's kind of shifted or, you know, it's not, it's not new. Let me be clear. This isn't new, but we have a new means of it that has made it more, I think, widespread is the internet allows us to shape our beliefs about other people in ways that are less grounded in reality because they are less based on my interactions with you and based on the caricature of you that is presented to me on the internet. And uh, this is now a big problem because if we in a society that is bound together, whether it's your community, your town, your county, your state, or your country, cannot get to a shared reality about who we are as each other, then, you know, and what we're going to do about policy with respect to each other and what your motivations are and all that kind of stuff. Well, then you just keep elevating temperature and that's when you get to hate. And once you get to hate, and we're pretty much already to hate, and that's part of what we've talked about in the last few episodes. Um, I'm not sure how you can have a country anymore because once you hate each other, you know, and, and this is where things like QAnon are really disturbing. The fact that so many people are willing to believe that particularly democratic politicians are truly evil people, right? That you have to believe that they're evil to even believe that it's true. Uh, that's really disconcerting from a, from a perspective of how do you keep a society going, particularly a democratic society. And, you know, so we've got, we've got, to, you know, misinformation beliefs, that's always going to be there, but um, we've got to somehow get to the point where people on the demand side of the information market are trying to learn the truth about other people in society. And on the supply side, we've done some things to impose some gatekeeping so that we can actually get to the truth more easily without having to weed through a bunch of garbage. So you talk about gatekeeping in there and Charlie, I know you've written about um, how the, you know, the, the social media platforms are kind of trying to, cope with this problem, although at the same time, they are arguably responsible for it in terms of how the algorithms are designed to drive us to more and more extreme viewpoints or positions. I mean, yeah, how, what's the role? I mean, is is social media here a cause? Is it is it an effect? How are you kind of thinking about social media in this moment? I think it's an accelerator. I don't think it's necessarily a cause 
I agree that you know these these problems are not necessarily new, but they are they are definitely new in in I think the intensity and and the speed. You know, I, I, I'm looking a lot. I, I spend a lot of time thinking about this and talking to people about this and talking to lawmakers, et cetera, and, and viewing their conversations. You know, we, we've had like multiple uh, hearings with tech CEOs in front of Congress in the last, just since the election. Um, and there's this issue of, of speech that, that we seem to be very focused on when we talk about this, right? Like whether we're talking about censorship or whether we're talking about, you know, just a, a glut of misinformation and speech that is, that is dangerous and, and what to do about it. And fundamentally, I think when you're thinking about social media's role in this, we're, we're not really thinking about it usually the right way. I mean, this is not really a free speech issue as much as it is an attention issue. Like it, the platforms are rarely deciding on issues of speech, what is to be banned, what is not allowed. I mean, they do do that in some extreme cases with hate speech, but when you really get down to it, what this is, is this is a, this is an amplification platform. You know, like what we see on a platform like Facebook or even, even Twitter, it's not a raw feed. It's not just, you see every single thing that, you know, the people you follow, throw out there, you see uh, a curated, an algorithmically curated feed. You see, um, you know, things are amplified and promoted based off of how popular they become and, 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 and based off of sort of, you know, the, the architecture of these platforms. And so I think you know, the way that I'm thinking about this whole conversation right now is that, you know, we're stuck on these issues of like what speech should be allowed, what should be, um, what is what is dangerous? What is not? Those are important questions for sure, but I think they they sort of elide the the, the bigger point here, which is these are these are amplification platforms. These are megaphones. These are ways for people to you know gain audiences. There's a lot of money to be made off of this, and and these platforms are designed in a specific way to reward incendiary content, to reward content that shares that you know it evokes very strong emotions. And in and what we've seen is that th that gives a natural advantage to a certain kind of person. Um, you know, uh, and, and the, the emotions that travel fastest are, are these ones that are usually divisive, that are usually a bit toxic. Um, and so the way that I'm thinking about this right now is, is it, it's been a real struggle, honestly, because I, I've emerged as, you know, a, a critic of social media companies and have this this platform where I can, you know, uh, write pretty, uh, you know, get a lot of get a lot of attention to, to these to these pieces, and I and I'm coming up against a problem, which is that I I don't really have new or interesting things to say about a company like Facebook. I think that it is by design, it is broken and it is failed. It is um it, it is rewarding a t a type of content and sentiment that is slowly pulling us apart and making us making it harder to find that shared reality but also you know as was just mentioned here making making it easier for us to distrust each other and and and, and hate each other and um and, and and to divide us and and so i think you know i've written this before but i don't think facebook can be reformed in the sense of making tweaks on the margins i think you're I think what we are seeing with social media is we have run up against a fundamental issue. If we are going to port our, um, you know, our public square and our discussions and, and, and sort of our, you know, that, 
that back and forth, which is the backbone of a healthy democracy, if we're going to port those over to these platforms and they're going to choose to privilege the most incendiary version of every critique and comment uh, and the most bad faith arguments, then, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to have a healthy, uh, a healthy conversation and a healthy democracy. So I, I, I think they're to some degree beyond saving and, and need to be sort of rethought from an architectural perspective. So the business model fatally flawed in a way, fatally corrupt, perhaps. Are, we, are you willing to go that far? Fatally corrupt because not fatally flawed. Well, yeah, you're right. It's very good business model. Exactly. Uh, and, and again, I, I'm not trying to uh, suggest that these are easy questions, uh, or rather that they have easy answers. I think, you know, far from that. It's it's really difficult. Um, but I spend I spend a fair amount of time talking to people inside these companies, um, good people, right? Uh, people who are trying to help. And um, you know, a lot of the a lot of the fixes come up against the the fundamental nature of the business model and you know that's always sort of that's going to win out every time uh, so I, I do think we have these questions that are a bit existential for these platforms so can we look at kind of you know we're not going to solve the sort of how to how to re-engineer these platforms or throw them out the the window today but can we evaluate kind of the actions the platforms took in the lead up and in the aftermath of the election? I mean, they're prominently um, sort of labeling tweets about, uh, you know, election fraud or, or irregularities with, with, with labels. Um, there was the case of, of the, the platforms kind of throttling uh, the stories about Hunter Biden in the lead up to the election. How, how are you feeling about, uh, you know, given these sort of baked in problems, uh, how have the platforms responded? Uh, how, how are you kind of evaluating what they've been trying to do to address some of these concerns? I think it's a really disjointed response. And I think that's because there's many different problems that are, they're trying to solve, right? So from the sense of a foreign interference problem, information operations that are coming from professional, you know, foreign governments um, or, or, you know, sort of domestic people trying to conduct propaganda campaigns at scale to influence and impact our election. Uh, I, I've spoken with, you know, with the leads at Facebook and, and, at, and at Twitter on these teams, and they're doing a fantastic job. I mean, th their job is not to, you know, moderate content necessarily. It's to, you know, ferret out these coordinated, inauthentic campaigns uh, full of, you know, bots or, or, or sort of manipulation uh, of, you know, of, of real people and real accounts and things like that um, to sort of create a fake false narrative. And, and that's been incredibly successful. I mean, if you look at the way that, uh, you know, 2016 was, there was a really dominant narrative of like foreign interference. Um, that did not come to pass as a result of these teams inside Facebook and Twitter and other places working pretty feverishly uh, over the past you know year and a half, two years to, to to combat this. And so I think they should be commended on that front. I think that was that was they've made a job very difficult for those folks. I think from a from a you know an organic domestic standpoint, a lot of the misinformation and disinformation is coming from inside the house, right? It's coming from certain, uh, you know, it's coming from us, one of, one of our two dominant political parties at this, at this point. Um, and I think in that, in that sense, Facebook has, has especially uh, more so than, than Twitter and, and YouTube has failed as well, but 
they failed catastrophically. I mean, if you go and <laughs> and look, I mean, uh, Facebook is is awash as we speak um, in in content that seeks to undermine, you know, our collective faith in the results of, of the 2020 election. Um, conspiracy theories abound. Um, they're checked poorly, I would say, with these labels. Um, some of my former colleagues at BuzzFeed News reported this week that Facebook has internal data that shows that the labels that they put on Donald Trump's posts when he claims that he's won the 2020 election or has won the state of Michigan or the state of Georgia are barely effective, you know, 8% effective in deterring shares um, and deterring uh, people from, you know, amplifying those messages. That's, and, and yet that's all they do, you know, uh, and I think that there's a there's a there's a real inaction inside Facebook because you know my reporting has showed that that there's a there's an, a real fear of being seen as politically biased a real fear of seeing you know seeming uh, to have put a finger on the on the scale at all in this election and that sort of leads to inaction and that inaction benefits the the Trump campaign or benefits you know just generally people who are uh, who are sort of looking to seed mis and disinformation. So I'd say it's a real, that's a long-winded way of saying it's, it's a real mixed bag. You know, I think that certain things we've really learned how to deal with outside threats. Uh, and I think that we're just generally very good at sort of uh, taking action against foreign elements in, in, in American life. And I think we have a real problem uh, examining, you know, what's coming from inside the house. Bryce, your thoughts. So obviously there's the supply side and that's what the platforms are. And in some sense, I think I agree that if we snapped our fingers and we just shut all the platforms down, that things would get better to some degree, but the demand is still there. And the opportunity for a person to operate in bad faith, you know, you know, I'll be, I'll use economic language. We're, you know, we call them, you know, hate entrepreneurs uh, to, you know, still put that hate out there, whether it's through talk radio or a cable television station or whatever it is, you know, so, you know, in some sense, we can do some stuff on the supply side and we should do stuff on the supply side to make it harder. Cause you know, ultimately look, if you look at, if, if we say, look, there's a goal here of us having shared reality of getting to truth. If you go through all of the places where that's a fundamental feature we have some amount of gatekeeping on the supply, right? So in the court of law, you're not allowed to just walk in and say whatever you want, right? There's, you know, legal penalties and all sorts of gatekeeping about what actually shows up and gets testified to in a court. If you go to science, you know, we have a whole process of, you know, how do you get to contribute to science? Well, you have to act, basically add something to science and, uh, you know, that gives you the credibility to then comment on it. And, you know, we kind of have a whole peer review system. Look, and it's not to say that any of these systems are perfect, but I think if, if we're going to say, yes, on the supply side, we probably need to do more than just let anybody have wide amplification. Um, but at the end of the day, part of what we have to do is we also have to get to the demand side, right? We have to start working on doing more so that people aren't, you know, we have to ask the question, why aren't people trying to find out? Because it, the internet makes it really easy to find the truth. 
If you really want to know the truth about something, it is as easy as it has ever been to find truth. The bigger question is, is why do so many of us not want to find truth? And how do we get more of us to want to find truth? And I don't think I have the answers to those questions. So I'll volley it back to you two <laughs> to see if you have any thoughts on it. But that's kind of the framework that I use. Charlie, I'll let you jump in. Do you have a response <laughs> to that? <laughs> well, I think we're going to figure it out right here. So uh, get ready. No, um, that's right. Uh, I think that's a fantastic point. And, and it's, it's almost peculiar how little it comes up that supply side versus demand side thing. And, and, and it's, it's probably where I end up feeling the most pessimistic, right? Because I, I think you're, I think you're totally right. Like we spend a lot of time trying to figure out, you know, what, what either tweaks or what, you know, rules we can put in place to sort of make this, make this stop or, or not stop, but stem the tide a little, you know, sort of, um, uh, push the barbarians back from the gate, whatever you want to say. Um, and and I think the demand part of this is is incredibly important. You know, I, I've done a, a bit of reporting around uh, the QAnon conspiracy theory and talking to different uh, researchers and and talking to you know people who have actually you know been involved and have sort of gotten themselves out of um, out of that rabbit hole a little bit. Um, and the thing that they always bring up to me, which I which I I find you know really illustrative is the idea that you know these these conspiracy theories including QAnon they provide a an easy framework for understanding the world they provide a uh, a you know a lens through which to see it they provide a even more importantly they provide a community uh, of sort of like-minded people who who are accepting to them and 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 that you know it, it fills a, a whole series of emotional needs um, and and I think that when I sort of really get into it with people like this, I think we always get to the notion that there are larger, for, forgive the sort of cliche word, but there are larger systemic issues at, at play here. You know, I, so much of, um, when you really drill down into it, my, my reporting has shown that a lot of, you know, extremists and a lot of conspiracy theorists and a lot of, you can trace a lot of it to you know, the 2008 financial crisis and sort of a, you know, a hollowing out of, uh, uh, of the middle class and people feeling left behind and people turning inwards, getting people getting laid off and spending more time at home and more time on the internet and, and finding, you know, finding community there and, and, um, and I think that retreat inward is, is, is really important, especially as we, we sit through, you know, we're living through this pandemic. A New Angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hi, I'm Nora Sachs. I'm the host and reporter of Richest Hill, a podcast from Montana Public Radio, and you're listening to A New Angle. was talking to a colleague in the United Kingdom who works for the Times this week. And they were saying that, you know, there, there's a, a real worry in the country right now as, as they're in the middle of a, of a, of a very real lockdown to try to uh, keep COVID under control, that these lockdowns 
really drive up um, recruiting into online extremism because people are forced into these positions with, with little to do. And so, you know, I think that when you look at trust in, you know, government, when you look in trust in the media, when you look at, um, you know, unemployment or, you know, economic inequality, all these issues, like, I, I, I mean, they're, they're obviously all, all connected to this. And I think that there is, you know, there is a, a real group of people who have understandable reasons to distrust institutions and feel wronged by them and left behind. And I think that that, you know, that provides the demand. So I think, I, I think we're stuck in this cycle. What really just is very difficult for me is, you know, these people get stuck in a cycle and then contribute to further undermining the trust in the media and in government uh, and it makes those institutions less effective uh, at doing their jobs and then gives those people more and more reason not to trust them or believe in them or, or want right. to get involved. And so it seems like we're stuck societally, in America at least, in, in that pattern. And, and I think some, you know, some things need to break there in order to decrease you know, what we're calling the demand side. And do you think it's symmetrical? In any ways, I mean, it's easy to sort of cast aspersions on the other side of the political aisle and think that, you know, we've got it right and they've got it wrong. But are, are there these effects on, on both sides of, of politics in the country right now? I, I think so. Uh, I, I do. I mean, I, I think I want to be very clear that I think in terms of like disinformation and, you know, uh, sort of anti democracy and, 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 you know, minority rule, I, I really, I really do think there's an asymmetry there. I mean, I think if you just look at the, mm-hmm. you know, the unwillingness to accept the results of the 2020 election by a large uh, swath of, of, of Republicans, I, I think, that, I mean, that's damaging in ways that are just so patently obvious. Um, but, but broadly speaking, like, a- a- absolutely. I'm, you know, I, I write a fair amount about the media because I, I'm critical of, of them. I'm critical of, I think broadly, there hasn't been a, a great adaptation to a lot of these, these trends, especially like the, the ones that are, you know, manifest first online. And I think it's been very slow to do that. And I think very slow to sort of recognize a lot of this stuff and, and, and it, it causes uh, some of this distrust, but I, I think a really good example of how, how this is playing out on, on, on both sides is, you know, this pandemic, and there's a couple examples recently of, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi in the, um, and the uh, and Democrats in the House setting up a, a like big indoor dinner last week in the Capitol building for all the new uh, the, the new class of, of uh, congressmen and women, and you know being sort of excoriated for that, or you know you have. Uh, uh, Gavin Newsom in right. California having dinner at the French Laundry, and 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 there's this there's this idea, you know, that you know rules for for thee and not for me, and and things like that do just such damage to public trust and and feeling like you know that this anti elite sentiment or feeling that that the ruling class isn't subject to the same the same rules as um, as as the working class or as you know average average people and and i i think that's that is just a very 
strong undercurrent in a lot of our politics right now. I think it's just very performative. It's very um, focused on fighting culture war battles. It's very focused on, you know, winning and getting reelected and fundraising and all these issues. And, and it, it does great damage to to our larger trust. Bryce, you were looked like you were going to jump in with a comment there. Yeah, I mean, I think all that's right. I mean, like a lot of this stems from how do you rebuild trust, right? I mean, that's how you deal with the demand side. And then when basically, which is hard because any anytime you slip up, well, that's an erosion of trust. And, you know, what we need is grace, right? We need to allow people to make mistakes and, you know, allow them to prove their intention over over longer periods of time. But we also need more effective means of punishment, Right. And that's one of our problems. I think we talked about a few episodes ago, Justin, right, is with our politicians in particular, there's no punishment, particularly in a close election. And when you've divided yourselves into tribal identities is, oh, great, you're out there undermining the election itself. But those Democrats are socialists and I can't have, you know, I I was, you know, I I read a bunch of things post-election on, you know, how could you still vote for Trump and people explaining how could they still vote for Trump? And uh, if you read through them, like I'd say a majority of the reasons that people are citing are usually that Democrats are evil in some way, which if you really do research on it is almost entirely untrue. It's like, Oh, they're socialists. And well, what does it mean to be a socialist first? Um, because based on the actual definition of socialism, there's only a couple that are truly socialist. And it's like, well, they're going to do this. And it's like, well, no, they actually, that's not likely to happen. You know, particularly if you actually understand the process of who the marginal senator is or who the marginal representative is. And, you know, but yeah, the, 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 the lack of ability to punish bad behavior, particularly when it comes to not just politicians, but large institutions, you know, whether it's the media or particular media organizations, you know, we have so, one of the great frustrations I think that people who pay attention have is that they like, I know that you're not telling the truth right now and I want you to be punished for that. And then you're not punished for it. In some sense, that was the whole sentiment that Charlie was talking about with respect to the election, right? The fact that it was so much closer than people thought it, quote, should be, given the bad actions that preceded it with respect to the pandemic, with respect to undermining, you know, norms of democracy and corruption and all these kinds of things. And, you know, if we don't have a means to punish bad behavior, it's really hard to reestablish trust, right? I mean, the, the standard game theory approach is you play tit for tat with you know, random bits of forgiveness here and there to see if, you know, once I'm punishing you, I give you a chance every 10 times or whatever it is to see if you've got learned your lesson and are willing to cooperate. And, you know, right now we can't even do the tit for tat. It's just kind of, you know, yell and scream into the ether. And, you know, there's no, there's no, there's no means to get it under control via, you know, some collectively agreed upon norm. And so then we start saying, well, we need to use the state power to enforce the norm. And that's when you get up at a whole other different bailiwick of, you know, cultural political issues that, you know, well, do I really want the state involved in this? Mm -hmm. And so I don't have a great solution to it. I just think that, you know, I can, I can point you to where it needs to go. Yeah. We need to work on the demand side. We need to work on restoring trust. And so it's, it is harder uh, to undermine all of these institutions and spread misinformation, but 
I'm very pessimistic that we have many levers at our disposal that will actually succeed. So talking about potential solutions, and Charlie, a moment ago, you mentioned your colleague in Great Britain. We got a great listener question this month from one of our graduate students. I'll play it now. Hey, Charlie. My name is Nate Bender, and I'm a graduate student at UM. I'm concerned about how sustainable it is to count on big tech companies like Twitter and Facebook to, in essence, make their products worse when they curtail their algorithms to combat disinformation at key moments like the election. Are there examples of other countries effectively putting regulation or incentives in place that show more power than our current state in the U.S. of just hoping powerful people will do the right thing for democracy? So it's difficult. I think it's actually, I think we're, this conversation has trended really well into this into this question because, first of all, I'll, I'll give an example, right? Um, there, there's actually a really decent, uh, good piece in um, in the Washington Post from August 10th this year by a Kennedy School of Government um, graduate and uh, foreign service officer that was talking a bit about how uh, Taiwan works to counter Chinese disinformation. And it's it's a multi-step approach, which is you know monitoring media platforms, trying to you know debunk, sort of use things like memes to disseminate correct information properly. It you know it worked really well. The government worked really well with um, public health officials with the coronavirus things like that, and trying to sort of take pol- political leaders out of it and then make make sort of uh, apolitical. Um, leaders the, the the face of of these types of crises so that then you sort of de-escalate um and and that actually you know that's not like a platform moderation thing but it but it really does help to sort of take these these people out of it um and then and then a, you know a real focus on um on education media literacy uh, working on that you know in schools and from, from a very early age giving people the tools to deal with this but uh, they also they also you know developed um, laws that 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 have helped. Um, I think there's called an anti-filtration law uh, to deter Chinese interference in elections. These are less almost platform things uh, and more like we're talking about consequences, right? Consequences for bad actors because it's it's it is it's really hard for there to be. These platforms are so big. There's so much going going through them. It really is hard to, to find meaningful ways to regulate. But if, if you know if you have very serious uh, penalties that can be placed on people who who you know directly do meddle and cause harm um, that can be proven, I think that I think that's a you know a decent disincentive. But bringing all that up, I I think what we were talking about earlier with how you know, how do you fix some of these problems. I really do think it comes down, whether it's the platforms or whether it's our politics, it's, it's, it's all an issue of governance, right? I think, you know, we're, we're saying, do you want the state to get involved, uh, you know, in some of these big problems? And, and there's a real reticence there. It's similar to the idea of, so do, you, do you want the platforms to really get involved and to censor and do the, you know, whatever? In, in government, the answer is actually, I think, a little bit easier because you do. And then if you don't like the decisions, you can use the, <laughs> the means of, of, of politics to, to vote them out. I think what we're stuck in right now is, is 
a government that is so ineffective, that is so willing to actually use the levers of democracy that we, we don't, um, we don't really, people don't see their government at work and, and, and that, you know, that helps lose trust. And, and I think, you know, as a, as a result, politicians are really afraid to do things and to propose ambitious legislation and to, you know, to, to do that. And, and people, uh, you know, disinformation peddlers and propagandists are, are really trying to, you know, to make it harder for them to do their jobs and to make, you make them afraid to do them. And I think it's similar to the platforms, right? You know, the platforms are afraid to intervene and be called politically biased and, and to, and to do things. So we have a governance problem on all ends. And what ends up happening is, is a paralysis and the paralysis always benefits the, you know, the, the bad faith actors, the people who are willing to, to exploit the system. And so that's where, where I think we are. So when we, when we talk about, you know, this, this example from Taiwan, this is a really aggressive government approach to something that they deem as, as a, as a large problem that both is focused a little bit on the platforms, but broadly also focused through policy initiatives that, 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 you know, are aimed at the culture and, and aimed at its citizens. So I think, I think we focus so much on what is this fix that we can do on this platform? What is this? And I think we really need to empower institutions to take control of or empower, you know, the, the, the leaders in these institutions to take control of them and to use them and then exercise sort of the democratic ability to say, well, we either, you know, like what you did or we don't and, and your, your time is done. So I think it's a lack of governance problem. I think that you know, I, I really thought that was a great answer, and I am. You know, I love that it's Taiwan again, right? Because Taiwan obviously is one of the leaders in the pandemic, and it's like you know, maybe I should be looking more at Taiwan and learning more about it. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, you're right. Uh, the issue is to we have power. We invest the state with power, and you know, we have elections in theory to allow us, the people, to direct that state power and hold it accountable when we use it in ways that are, we don't like, and yeah, we've kind of broken all the institutions. So we don't think that that, that works very well, certainly not at the federal level, but there's a whole bunch of other levels of government that hopefully we could maybe get some action out of. But yeah. So I think that's right on. I think that the, 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 we need to stop basically begging Mark Zuckerberg to do what we want him to do. And, you know, because technically the economic incentives are entirely against us, right? What Mark Zuckerberg is doing is the right thing for the business. It's the right thing for the shareholder. It just may not be the right thing in terms of amplifying truth as opposed to amplifying emotion. Um, and what we want is to say, you know what? We should probably do more amplification of truth rather than emotion. And here are some levers that we could pull uh, without having to basically be in the let me kneel before you rich person uh, in control of the platform and hope that you do what's right. Um, you know, we have to be willing to take back. If we don't like what's happening in society, the whole point of, of democratic governance is that we have a say uh, in saying, we don't like what's happening in the society and we want it to be better. And obviously we have institutional barriers to that happening, but certainly, you know, there's a, I like the empowerment there that it, you know, it's not just, feel bad as you look at the world around you, but there, there is a direction for action uh, that, you know, isn't just plead with Rupert Murdoch and Mark Zuckerberg to do the right thing. 
Well, and I and I think from the from the governance perspective, it goes even it goes even further than that too. Like, or it, rather, it extends to a platform like Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg. Like, you know, they are in the same way that Congress is terribly afraid of doing things and paying any price for for you know their actions. But you know, by not doing these things, it sort of it gives cover to everyone to sort of you know just kind of exist on the platform in a you know and, and feel kind of bad about it um but you know if they were to really say okay this is the speech that isn't allowed or this is you know this is the type of behavior that isn't allowed there would be a lot of people who would leave the platform uh they'd be able to sort of you know there would be a referendum on it and just similarly like people might vote with their you know with the clicks of their mouse not to use facebook anymore because they you know feel that it's 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 not it's not worth their time and we're just in a period of these of, of just great stagnation, and I think you know you, whether it's Congress or whether it's Facebook, we're all living with these institutions and generally feeling kind of terrible about them. And they're not giving the institutions themselves aren't really giving us any room to move or or do anything with them. So I, I, yeah, I feel like I feel like it's just a this great stagnation is um, is giving these institutions some cover to to, to fail us. Well, and, you know, I think, you know, and all of us personally, I mean, I feel like, I mean, within the last two days, you tweeted about how much you hate being on Twitter, right? We're all currently living with this, like, I don't really want to be here, but I also, like, there's things on here that are good that I would like, that I like, and I, you know, there's just constant tension with, you know, and I've, everybody is now choosing different mixes, I, I feel like. I feel like there's a lot of more I don't go on that one anymore but I go on this one but like yeah I mean it's all we're all kind of we're all in limbo because it's like the the platforms are afraid to do things differently because they're afraid to lose a big chunk of their user base because that's their business model but then they're all kind of doing the same thing so there's not like I can go what I really want is purely academic twitter right so essentially like oh like you have to if you could keep it basically, like the I want the algorithm to learn that, like I want to be informed and not, you know, inflamed, right? Even though my actions might show that I'm more interested in being inflamed, you know, my actual interest in going on to when I open up Twitter, I am not doing it because I want to feel bad, right? Even though if you look at how long my eyes linger on and what I click on, yeah, it might be more of that. But what I really want out of Twitter is the people who elevate, you know, interesting facts about the economy. And again, I'm an economist, so I'm weird. But like, you know, I want the, you know, oh, hey, here's what's happening with the, the pandemic and the economy. Here's what's happening. Uh, here's an interesting paper that, you know, somebody just wrote. That's why I still actually log on. Facebook never provides me with that. So I don't go on Facebook at all anymore, you know. But what I did like about Facebook and what if somebody could give me if it were just my kids, uh, my friend's kids, I would probably go back on it, right? But I don't go on Facebook because I don't want to hear what the random person from high school thinks about Donald Trump. Right. I So uh, I have a piece coming out uh, in the near future um, that explores this sort of phenomenon uh, and, and where we are, especially with Facebook, where I... Uh, 
I got uh, two older Facebook users from different parts of the country to give me their Facebook passwords, and I lived in their their feeds for a long time. Uh, oh God! And wow. uh, nice. and <laughs> this, you know, what I what I really learned is is sort of what you're what you're describing here, which is Facebook was this place where a lot of connections were formed, a lot of people reconnecting with old, with you know weak weak ties in their network, you know people from high school, whatever, and it was joyous because it was just sharing small little life updates. It was a little bit voyeuristic, getting to see who got fat, who got married, who got whatever, you know, and 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 it was lovely. And then around 2013, around 2014, Facebook changed the platform substantially towards uh, news and links and sharing. Uh, it became a lot more political, and these weak ties—these people who, you know, the folks who I, who I whose Facebook accounts I was in—they hadn't seen these people in 35 years, and yet they were these people who they barely knew were their primary vectors for information, and it turned and basically weaponized these connections into you know into this sort of political information sphere, and and. And, and it's a very weird phenomenon that we're all dealing with. Um, and, you know, the, the end result was that both of them were miserable because of this. You know, they're not conspiracy theorists. They're not, they're not bad people at all. Uh, they, were, they were miserable, and yet they couldn't look away because the misery, you know, they were trying to understand it and trying to, you know, trying to cope with it. And they needed to be on the platform to you know, try to talk people out of their opinions or, or, or whatnot. And, and, and we're just seeing that happen at scale, which I think is, is, a pre, is a pretty wild thing. And it's a great example of this, this idea that we're, you know, we're stuck in these, these stagnant information and political ecosystems that make us feel awful, but we don't really know how to leave them. Well... I think, Charlie, we probably have to find a way to land this ship. I want to be respectful of, of your time. You know, speaking of like figuring out ways through this, I am two weeks into life with a light phone and feeling quite good about it, not missing any of that uh, colored stuff on the, uh, on the iPhone. So anyway, uh, in our final segment here, we talk predictions. You mentioned stagnation, um, but there seems to be a lot in the offing in the near term. Um, Charlie, start with you. Do you want to join us in, in making a prediction? Sure. What's our What's our time scale? Yeah. So uh, basically, before um, the twenty fifth of next month. So between now and, and Christmas, basically, what do you think is going to happen? Wow. Uh, I, I hate to. I feel like I am just always just. I walk around the world as like the um, the, the killjoy uh, all the time. <laughs> um, I think that we are. In the next month, I think we'll see a further erosion of the sort of the the Trump case of you know uh, I, I think that I think the Joe Biden presidency will become uh, more and more accepted by all uh, members of the political party. I'm, I'm, this is more of a, a hope than a than a prediction. Um, but I but then I also think we're going to be dealing with um, a truly unprecedented issue in the pandemic. I just spoke with a, an ICU doctor this morning uh, who told me that they believe Thanksgiving day will determine the, the course of the country for the next uh, six months and whether or not people adhere to the advice. So I have a, I have a, a real, I'm really hoping I'm wrong on this one as well. Um, but I, I have a fear that 
next month we will be uh, dealing with a pandemic that's just truly out of control as a result of a lot of people not not doing what they need to be doing uh, in the in the coming week. Well, we can see the car coming at us. It'll be a question of uh, whether we can get out of the way or not. Bryce, how about you? Your prediction? Yeah, my prediction is also pandemic uh, related, and it's also grim. You know, I mean, the beauty of we now have enough data. We actually understand the the functional relationship. So it's really not that hard to predict the future now, right? So if you just look at however many cases we see nationally today, we know that in three weeks, somewhere between 1.5 and 2% of that number will be dead. Um, and so we know that pretty much guaranteed, even before we get to Thanksgiving, that come early, middle December, we're going to hit new records for daily confirmed deaths, right? Obviously, there's excess mortality beyond the confirmed deaths. And so, you know, now we're basically, it's, well, how bad are we going to get with cases? And while I would like to think that, um, you know, so right now what we're dealing with is uh, we're dealing with the aftermath of the Halloween slash election spikes. Those spikes are very clear in the data. Basically, wait a week after an event and you'll see a spike. So a week after Halloween was when this thing really spiked up at a different level than we were at. We were already growing before that because of just people moving inside because of the colder weather. But then we we supercharged that uh, with Halloween followed four days later with the election. And we saw this four-day plateau that we actually are coming down from now. And, you know, if this that were the end of the peak then yeah, by, by December, we would be back to not having growth anymore if we, if we came down from that peak at the same rate we came down in the summer. But uh, obviously, it's still getting colder and colder in more parts of the country. And then Thanksgiving is just an absolute massive danger, right? It is people who don't usually mix together getting together indoors for a prolonged period of time. And you know, just to add some data, I pulled up the American Time Use Survey. And uh, on Thanksgiving Day, relative to other days in November, the average American spends two hours less alone wow. than they do normally. And they spend 10 times more time with non-household people. So hopefully this drops on Tuesday. Um, you know, obviously people still need to meet their needs. And that's part of the problem that we have with our messaging with pandemic, right, is it's been going on for a long time. People need to meet their needs. There's a need for family. There's a need for community. There's a need for social interaction. But if you at all can meet those needs in ways that involve masks and being outside, do it that way. Don't go inside and mix with a bunch of people that you don't already mix with. Because if we get to, you know, if we continue on the trajectory that we're actually on currently, there's a really good chance that by early December, we'll be at 300,000 cases a day, which then puts us at you know over 5,000 deaths a day by Christmas. And I don't think any of us want to live in a world where you know we're double where we were in terms of deaths per day in April on Christmas. Uh, so if that can help motivate you, please uh, reduce your interactions while still trying to meet your needs. Indeed. So two somewhat uh, grim 
COVID-related predictions. I guess I will scrap my COVID-related prediction. Maybe I can save it for next month. Uh, maybe it'll be obvious. Uh, I'm going to go back to social media and say, maybe I don't know, take this as optimistic, pessimistic, however you want. Probably uh, where you sit is where you stand on this. But um, January 21, Twitter bans the Donald Trump account. We'll see what happens. Okay. It might take a little bit longer, but I think that it won't surprise me if that happens at some point, or at least long-term suspensions. Well, their main sort of rationale for you know tolerating the violations of the the usage standards um, kind of goes away. Um, perhaps we'll see stress test of some of the policies, I suppose. Then again, back to your point, Bryce. We're sort of hoping for these companies to do the right thing. I don't know if that's a very strong position for us to be in. Charlie, this has been fantastic. I appreciate it. I know we went over time a little bit. Um, this has become, you know, a new angle has become a little bit of a, a regular stop for New York Times opinion writers. You know, we had Maureen Dowd a year or two ago. Now Charlie Warzel. Charlie, can you set us up with Kara Swisher or Ross Douthit? Or you know, maybe Bryce <laughs> wants to talk to Paul Krugman. Um, so hopefully you can hook us, hook us up in the future. <laughs> I, I will I will do my best. They uh, they're all wonderful people, uh, and I'll actually, as you know, much much more accessible than people think. So I'll 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 do my best to uh, get this get this next on their on their whistle stop tour. Awesome. Well, thanks very much. Be safe. Have a happy and healthy Thanksgiving, and um, I'll see you down the road. All right. You as well. Take care. Thanks for listening to a new angle. We really appreciate it. A New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot, with support from the University of Montana College of Business and Consolidated Electrical Distributors. AJ Williams is our producer. Jeff Amet, John Wicks, and VTO made our music. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. If you like what you heard, tell your friends about us. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.